So uh, let us pray, um, you know, and let us dive into the text today, and then I'm going to ask the deacons to make sure that everybody's got one of these worship guides, because you'll need that today. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that we're here. I thank you that we get to be able to just stop and pause and be inside your word and be able to listen to how the Spirit has moved in our lives and ask God for a blessing on this as we expand and and we see what the Spirit is saying to us for today and for the future as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So everybody needs one of these worship guides, and if you haven't got one, just put your hand up and deacons will make sure that you have one of these. Uh, There's a connect card at the back here. You're welcome to fill it in. If you don't know what to do with it, you can put it in the offering plate at the end uh, when you place your offerings and your tithe in there, and your tithes and your offerings, and your offerings in tithes. Is that... You, you understand what happens, right? At the end of the service, that's what you do. Offerings and tithes in there. And you put the connect card, or you can put it in the little watering can over there, and we'll take care of that. But you will need this today. So let me do a recap with you. We're only one week away from finishing this whole series on prophets and kings, and I just want to make sure that, we, uh, that we've got this right here. Let's uh, begin over here. The children of Israel are where? in exile, and they're looking through the entire history, they're looking all the way back to Judges, and they're looking at Moses, and they're looking at the kings, and the whole story of First and Second Kings is to help them to understand, did God abandon them, or did they abandon God, because they're in exile. And we're hoping that this is not just history, but what is it as well, that it's gonna transform what? That's really good. Next week, I'm going to actually give you the answer. Uh, They are going to transform your identity in God. That's what they're hoping for. That by the time you finish the whole book of First and Second Kings and come to the end and sit in exile, you'll understand who you truly are in God and your identity will be transformed with that. So the journey has been pretty intense and last week we looked at the great journey of the wonderment of what God's done and the great journey of how God serves us and the intention that things are not accidental but intentional behind what God is trying to do. But today, Oh my goodness, today, the passages today are actually 1 Kings chapters 11 to 17. How many of you had a chance to read 2 Kings 11 to 17? It was heavy, wasn't it? It's heavy, and it is. It seems like it's just this downward spiral of things going just not in a good place. And in truth, it isn't going as well as it should be going, and that's why they're in exile, and they're trying to understand how bad it got. But there are some things inside here, some things that are repeated over and over again, and it will be said this all the time. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's like every other verse, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then there's always this comes up often throughout the the chapters, nevertheless, the high places were not removed, or nevertheless, he didn't do this or that. It seems to be this huge tension where they're evil kings, nevertheless, they just don't do this, or they're good kings, nevertheless, they still don't do this, and so there's a huge tension back and forth all the way through. But I found three things inside these chapters that I feel really strong. I found inside these stories here, grace, hope, and faith. And I wanna kind of unpack the story, and you're like, no, there wasn't grace, there wasn't hope, there wasn't faith in these stories, there was blood, and there was death, and there was evil. But I can see grace, hope, 
and faith inside here, and I want to challenge you to go with that journey with me. So we're going to begin with question number one, which is in your worship guide, so if you make sure you've got your worship guide with me. These are great questions, questions that you can use in open word or the young adult class or at your lunchtime or with your family as well, and things for you to think about. And the first question is here, and this is going to cover chapters 11 and 12. What do we do with the grace God provides? What do we do with the grace God provides? The kingdom is in chaos, right? Absolute chaos all over the place. And Athilla, she is the grandmother. She becomes queen. This is the first and last time that a female becomes queen, not married to a king and becoming the queen, but actually the queen of the entire empire. And she becomes queen. She assassinates everyone, which is kind of the MO, right? Every time somebody becomes king, you notice what do they do? They're like, well, I just don't like John Chabon, take him out, and they're done, like this. And that's what they're doing all the time, they're just assassinating everyone. Although in our case, if we tried to get John, we'd probably not make it. So, you know, it's the difficult attempts. But she, Athilla, she kills everyone. Her stepdaughter, okay, her stepdaughter says, no, 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 you're not going to kill everyone. And she grabs Joash, who's this one-year-old baby, and she hides Joash with the help of the priest. She hides him away, and Athila thinks, well, I'm queen. I've killed every single person. My grandchildren are dead. My cousins are dead. My relatives are dead. Everybody's dead. I am in charge. And she was in charge, and she ruled that empire for quite a while, for another six years. Until one day, Athilla's walking through the palace and hears this incredible sound like there's this party going on. And she's thinking, nobody told me there was a party. And what she doesn't realize is that the high priest had arranged for the most quintessential presidential secret service team to protect the king. I mean, the way that the Bible describes it, they, they, they were kind of like Navy SEALs, black op mercenaries who surrounded the king with swords drawn, saying, anybody comes to you, somebody offers you a grape, kill them. Somebody smiles, kill them. You will protect this king at all costs. So they surround, they bring the little boy who's now seven years old to the place, they crown him as king, they shout that he's king, and Athilla thinks, wow, a party, I wasn't invited, let me go find out. And as she walks into the palace, and she sees her eyes lock eyes with the boy on the throne, and she knows this is not gonna work. And of course, they end up taking her out and killing her, and defeating her, and he becomes king. And what it says in 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 20, is that the city was quiet after that. The city had rest in the land. It wasn't that they weren't talking anymore and they weren't in conversations. They just like, ah, the tension was over. Can you imagine any other stories that you've ever heard of, of a baby being taken away and hidden? Yeah. In the New Testament, in the Second Testament, the First Testament, we know of lots of stories of this. There is a kind of a, a, a special point inside here that God says, if you've got grace, if you have time, you should do something great with it. And this stepdaughter, she protected the weaker, the child. And the priest, he protected the weaker and the child. And maybe that's what we need to be called to do, to do something with the life that we have to protect those who are weaker, the children amongst us, and that's a high priority for us. But as there's rest in the land, 
people suddenly started to say to themselves that they were happy, right? And I thought to myself, what makes us happy? So I asked a, a young adult, David, to, to go and do some research and to find out what makes us happy. And, and here's a few photos that he discovered online. This apparently makes some people happy. Yeah, okay. This apparently, oh, steady, steady. Michael is rushing through them really quickly. <laughs> that last one, she apparently makes people happy. And the next one, she apparently makes people happy. I'm just checking. All right, and then he apparently makes people happy. Oh, even the men are smiling. All right, all right, and then next one. And then why are frogs so happy? Because they eat whatever bugs them. Apparently that's what makes them happy. And then playing the mega millions, remember to tithe double uh, when you do that. Um, and uh, what's the next one? Happiness can be the simple, little cookie monster. You remember the cookie monster? I like the cookie monster, it's really good. All right, that makes us happy. Uh, Coca-Cola. Open a Coke and open happiness. Isn't that rich? That's just fantastic. All right, good. And then this is really important. Let's focus on this a little while. This really makes some people happy because you don't have to restart it. All right, next one. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy Nutella. That's basically the same thing. I know, I know, I agree. And then... That makes you happy. Here's the thing, I received an email from Michaels. Anybody sign up for Michaels? Don't sign up for Michaels. If you go to the shop and you give them your email address, bad decision. I've tried to unsubscribe multiple times. Uh, and it just, it's like, you're unsubscribed. Only kidding. <laughs> Still sending you stuff. And I got an email a few weeks ago where it said, happiness guaranteed. And I was like, wow. Michaels knows me. They're going to give me happiness, guaranteed all the way through. But this is a great one that we found online, and I want you to see this picture here. Yeah, keep this up for a second. Her name is Emily O'Keefe. Emily O'Keefe entered into a competition and won pizza for a whole year. And here is the quote that she described the joy that she has of being guaranteed pizza for free for a whole year. She says this, I described it as the happiest I've ever felt and that I no longer need to get married because I've reached my ultimate happiness. Oh, yeah. There's a few issues this girl's got to work through. Pizza could be one of those. In a year, I'm really curious as to how she feels about all that pizza and, and what effects it may have had on her soul and her body and her life and whether she really feels happiest that she's ever been in her entire life. And I know we mock happiness like this because we don't get it. You know, I don't know if you went and saw the latest James Bond movie and, and Spectre, and I, this is the thing that's difficult for me. As I'm watching the movie, I'm watching James Bond come out of the house the very first scene and I'm looking at his shoes. I'm thinking, those shoes look so good. And then, and you know, he's got like a, a wire behind him, obviously, a mock-up, and he dives across, and then, and then he slides forward, and I'm like, the cut on the leg, oh, the trousers, they're so good. And then the camera zooms right behind him as he pulls the gun, and, and, and the camera zooms in, and I'm looking at his, the suit, man. It had like this fine blue, red lines, square patches, and I was thinking, I could just, touch that jacket, it's just, oh, it's so good. So there's a website called fjackets.com. You can buy James Bond suits there. 
They don't have my size. But I tell you, <laughs> that's not that funny. And I was just... <laughs> I was just like, oh, so beautiful. And I know there was a story taking place, and I think he was killing some bad people, but, but the suit was so good, and just had me mesmerized as I followed all the way through the entire movie, watching what he was wearing each time. So the problem is, is that we have reduced happiness to an instant, right? We have taken happiness, and we have just equated happiness to just a simple, gratifying moment of something tangible that we grab and we hold onto. There was city quiet rest in the whole land, and we just say, that must be happiness. We had a really great drink of coffee, and it was just, that was happiness for us. Whatever it is, that Instagram photo that we apparently live taking photos of our food nonstop, and I don't know why I'm addicted to do the same thing, but we do, because it brings us tremendous happiness. I even like other people's photos of the food, and I haven't even tasted it. I'm just like, that's so cool, like. <laughs> and that happiness is constantly instant. But what if happiness was grace? What if happiness was far deeper than that? What if the happiness that God was pushing us to was, was grace? And what if grace was time? Then you have to ask yourself, what do you do with that time? What do you do with the happiness that you have, which is grace that God gives you to have life? And what do you do with that time is so important. And the kings and priests in chapter 12, they wrestled through this. Once he became king, that boy grew up. He said to the priest, you know, I don't like the way that we're using the money that we collect at the church, and we should restore the temple. And they went back and forth, and they restored the temple. And eventually, with time and with grace, they did well. And then they started to demise, and they started to go down. And they even used the money of the church to pay briberies to the opposing armies that would come and attack them. And they lost all of that because sometimes we don't know how to respond to God's grace. We think God gives us grace so we don't have to obey him, so we can live our life any which way we choose. But God gives us grace so we can work with him and learn how to follow him and how to be a true disciple of his. That's what grace exists. That's what time is there for. I uh, was really blessed um, last week when I asked you guys to fill in the Connect cards and uh, read them on Monday morning at the office here. And I just, a huge stack, and I just pulled a few of these. And I, uh, some of you wrote your names down there, and some of you uh, just wrote them blank. And I'm going to read some of them that actually don't have their names attached to them to you. But here's the thing when you've got time and when you've got grace, and when the Holy Spirit is talking to you, this is what some of our congregants here, some of our partners in faith here said. Today, Jesus is asking me to love completely. And I picked this because I felt it was a common thread with quite a few other people, to love completely. Today, Jesus is asking me to find a new job that is more meaningful, less stressful, so that I can be more loving to my family and to my church and to my friends because we live under so much pressure all the time to achieve. Today, Jesus is asking me to seek his spirit and make a difference in the lives of the church we'll never reach, which is true. There are tons of people that we will never reach, that we'll never share and be the gospel with them in their lives, and yet for them, that's that way. Today, Jesus is asking me to be bold, to follow through, to see faces, and to hear what people really need. And today, Jesus is asking me to commit 100% to him. 
That is actually the ebb and flow of what we're supposed to do with our grace, with our time. The problem is that we take it for granted, don't we? I mean, we take our jobs for granted, and we take our homes for granted, and we take our food and our marriages for granted, and we take our health. We even take our church for granted. We say, well, it'll be here next week. You know, we take so many things for granted all the time. When I first began ministry, um, I remember working this one particular summer in, in Cornwall. There was this one church, Red Ruth Church, and several families, that just phenomenal families, who just took an, an 18, 19-year-old kid in and adopted the, the kid, that was me, into their lives. And one of them was the Clemo family, um, David and Dawn Clemo. They had three little kids. Those kids are now all grown up and got married and have kids themselves, and beautiful, beautiful family. But, but Dawn passed away yesterday, and... and uh, she had cancer, so life was taken early. And, on, and Victor, the, the pastor, he, he actually ended up marrying Becky and I, and he did the funeral service. He wrote to me, and I wrote a few words, and I was just talking to the family, the, the three kids this morning uh, via Facebook, and just reflecting on the fact that we do have time. And there are people in your lives that are alive today, and you do have time. Treasure it. Don't take it for granted. Every single moment counts. Grace exists not to be squandered away. And we squander away so much because we just don't have the courage to face the reality of having to confront somebody over something we're hurt. But we should embrace our family because family is important. And I know that those three kids, they're going to look after their dad. And the communities are going to look after their dad. And they're going to look after each other as well. And we need to be able to do the same as well. Precious, precious moments. Let's go to question number two inside our worship guide here. How can, be voice, how can we be voices of hope? And I'm going to cover chapters 13, 14, and 15 with this. I'm going to begin with a map. We'll go with the first map here. And uh, in this map here, what you see here is the end of chapter 12, where it basically said, Haziel, remember last week I mentioned King Elisha goes to this guy, Haziel, and he says to him, you're going to become king. And then he waterboards this other king, kills him. He becomes king, and Elisha weeps because he knows what he's going to do. And this guy here, those territory all on the right there, he took all those territory from Israel and from Judah. He just went all the way down to Moab, and he just continues to capture lands. And you'll see a little brown line that's going all the way down to Gath. Because he went all the way around Israel, all the way down to Gath, started to enter even into Judah. So he's starting to affect all of Israel. He's affecting all of Judah. And there's just tremendous pain taking place there. And it was, in these three chapters, just like the day of the judges. It's interesting, isn't it, that when they were in the time of the judges, they said to God, God, you know, we really don't like the idea of a priest telling us what to do. Let's have judges so we can be like other people. God said, all right, I'll let you have judges. Then they said, God, we don't really like judges telling us what to do. Let's have kings so we can be like other people. And yet the cycles that they did as judges, they do as kings. They went through this four cycle. There was evil, then there's punishment, then they beg for mercy, and then there is forgiveness. And then there's evil, then they have punishment, then they beg for mercy, and then there's forgiveness. And then there's evil, and then there's punishment, and then they beg for mercy, and then there's forgiveness. And that's chapters 13, 14, 15, over and over and over again inside there. This evil thing taking place, and God is constantly saying to them, I just, I know you're inside here, and I want you to be engaged. There is a voice of hope that you can raise amongst yourselves here. The story continues in chapter 13, and Elisha comes to the end of his life. 
And as he does this, he meets with the king of the north, Joash. So he meets with the king from Israel up north. And he says to him, Joash, take your bow and arrow. And Joash takes his bow and he pulls his bow and he says, fire the bow. And he fires the bow and he says, as far as that bow goes, that's what you're going to do. You're going to destroy Syria. Joash's like, this is great. He says, take the bow again and fire it into the ground. So Joash takes a bow and he throws the arrow in, one and two and three. And he's like, I've done three, that's enough, I feel good. And Elisha says to him, you should have done more. <laughs> now you're only gonna be able to beat Syria three times. If you had done it five or six, wow, you would have actually conquered them all. Shame on you. And Joash's like, I, I, I didn't know. I'm like, I just told you the arrow went far. Why do you think I asked you to hit the ground? So that you were bored? Because I wanted you to play? I mean, I want you to understand that God is saying there is a voice of hope and there's a way forward. Just follow me, have faith, go forward in it. But he doesn't do this. And of course, he does move forward and tries very hard in verses 15 to 19. He tries very hard to do this. Then Elisha falls asleep in Jesus. And there's this really weird verse that's gonna come up. Um, in 2 Kings, and I, I want us to read it, so if you turn with me to 2 Kings, because I think that's just so insightful and interesting and, and kind of weird, and people just struggle with this text a lot, but 2 Kings, and Elisha passes away, where is it, right here, Verse 20, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of year. And as the man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he received, he revived and stood on his feet. Do you get that? They're being attacked by the Moabites. And as they're being attacked by the Moabites, they're like, oh man, we're not gonna make it. And they realize they've got a wounded guy with them, and this guy's dead, and they say to him, hey, you know, you're not gonna make this, so you're dead, so let's throw you in the cave where Elisha was buried. He's only got his bones inside there, and they throw him in the cave, and the guy touches the bones of Elisha, because he's thrown on top of the bones, and he comes back to life. Pretty weird, eh? Yeah, that's what I thought when I read the text. I thought, that's... Weird. I don't know. And you know what? Uh, I, I, I thought, really wrestled hard through why this was included inside it. But when you understand the context, that they've been surrounded, they've been attacked, they've got these terrible kings against them, they've got the Moabites attacking them, they're like, where is the voice of hope? Elisha is dead now. The great prophet who used to tell us how to go to war against this stuff, he's dead and gone, there's no hope from God. And God's like, well, watch this. <laughs> and resurrects this guy just like that from the dead bones. I actually think that's why the early church really freaked out when heretics spoke up against it. And so that's why when they had heretics, when you know John Wycliffe, for instance, he said, well, I really think we should have the Bible in English. I really think, you know, I mean, the queen said so, the king said so, it is English after all. We should have people be able to read it. And he got into a lot of trouble about that. They killed him and they buried him, but they weren't satisfied with that because they probably read this text. They said, what if somebody touches his bones and comes to life? And so they got into the practice of actually burning the bones, crushing the bones down and scattering them as they did with John Wycliffe all over the place into the water because they wanted to be able to protect themselves from that. Well, Joash does well and he fights against 
Syria and does well three times. But then there's a new king in chapter 14 and 15, and he is the king of Judah. He's the king of the south, and he's Amaziah. Amaziah is just this evil, evil king. I mean, if you thought there were evil kings before, this king is even worse. But he feels to himself, you know what? I really don't like the territory you have. There's been peace for too long in the land here. And so just like it said in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, it says there that the sword would not depart from Judah. Sure enough, the sword doesn't depart from this king. And this king of the south says, I'm going to take the king of the north. And the king of the north says, don't try it. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to take you, the king of the north. You, your kingdom should be mine. And he goes to war, and it's terrible. He's crushed. Verses 12 to 14 says that the king of the north comes down to Jerusalem and breaks the walls down and opens it up and steals all the treasure from Jerusalem. And it's just a disaster there. And so all of a sudden, you have a new king now, Jeroboam II, and this one here, he did tons and tons of evil, but, but God let him have some hope in the land. And he gained all of the cities back. If you look at him down here, he gains all the cities, all that territory up in Syria, he gains all of that stuff back inside there. He starts to go and get all these land back and he's doing really well, but a new enemy has been growing all the time. And this enemy is called Assyria. Um, you maybe have heard of the story of Jonah and the whale. Yeah, that was in the city of Nineveh. That's in the heart of Assyria right there, in the middle of the map where all those arrows are coming out, that's Nineveh. Well, Jonah's a contemporary of all the stories that are taking place inside here, and you have Assyria taking place. And Assyria was this dark, giant empire growing up. So while Israel and Judah are battling things out, Assyria's growing and growing and growing and starting to spread themselves because what they want to do is they want to come down to where the Red Sea is. And the tip of the Red Sea is access to the whole world for them. So they want to be able to own that port. So they have to go through Israel all the time. And they started to attack Israel over and over time. So the big picture is that there are broken kings taking place all the time. But the people are not broken. They're broken people. And the cities are not broken. And they're broken individuals. And we are not broken. And God is asking them to just keep on having the hope inside there. In a world where we are kind of fed with happiness and excitement and instant gratification, he's saying, I want you to face reality, okay? I want you to, while you're in exile, to understand that there is hope. And chapter 15 finishes leaving us with Ahaz. And of all the kings, you're going to get, you think every king's getting worse? This king is definitely getting worse. This king Ahaz here, he does human sacrifice. He kills his own children. He worships the other idols on the high places. He's constantly creating problems. And then he reaches a dilemma one day. And let's see, I think, uh, no, I haven't got the map for that, but he reaches a dilemma. And this is what happens um, Assyria is saying to them, I want to go through you, Israel. I want you to follow me, and uh, if you follow me, then I'll let you live. But Assyria unites together with another empire, with the Syrians. You remember we used to talk about the Syrians? I don't want you to get confused about this. So Israel and Syria form an alliance. And they go to the king of the south, Judah, they say to him, Ahaz, I really, I really need you to understand this. I've got another way for you to handle this. I want you to form an alliance with us and we will fight all of Assyria ourselves. And so Ahaz has this dilemma now. He thinks to himself, should I form an alliance with the north and with the Syrians, fight Assyria, or should I go to Assyria myself and say, I'm your buddy, kill them and I'll be fine. 
That is dilemma, which brings us to our third and final question that we have inside our worship guide today that I want you to look at. Can we take our faith to the next level? See, he has to wrestle through the third way. And and Isaiah, who's a contemporary of this whole story taking place, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, it's page 405 in your Bibles. Remember those Bibles are there for you to take home, they're there for you to grab, they're there for you to be able to write in, put back inside, but you're welcome to take them home as well. Page 405, Isaiah 30, verse 15. So he is facing two options, both starting with the letter A, very confusing to him, should he join the alliance or should he join Assyria? And Isaiah comes along, verse 30, chapter 30, verse 15, for thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. He says to him, have faith. Have faith. And God will look after you. The problem is that the third option is really hard for us because we have really struggled with the whole idea of faith. In fact, we've made faith become really quite a, a personal thing. Because Ahaz thinks to himself, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. This is crazy. Faith is impractical. I mean, what does faith look like? I don't know. Isaiah, you're crazy. I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria. He does, and the Bible records that he makes an alliance with Assyria. Assyria comes in, decimates Israel, decimates Syria, and starts to take all of the wealth and the treasures of Judah as well. And he starts to lose his kingdom because he chose the wrong way. Isaiah says this in chapter 30, verse 15, he continues, but you were unwilling, and you said, no, and we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we rode upon the swift steeds, upon your pursuers shall swift, and he says, on and on and on, you just lost, you lost, you lost, you lost, you lost, because you did not have faith. And I blame our misunderstanding of faith on Martin Luther. Because <laughs> Martin Luther really pushed, and if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, page 696, page 696, you'll see what I mean. Page 696, Hebrews chapter 11. Martin Luther really pushed us to the idea of faith being a personal thing that happens with Jesus so that we are connected with God. And every time that you talk about faith, people will say, how's your faith growing? People automatically think it's about how's your personal relationship and your, your faith in God growing personally? Because remember, the whole world is about you. Okay, and so Martin Luther's just pushed this pretty hard, and I understand why he pushed it, but when you read what Paul says about faith, he says something entirely different, and we were looking at this on Tuesday in our Bible study a little bit in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where, that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in the foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, and heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that was foundations, whose design and build is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, and since she considers himself faithful, who had the promise. By faith, it continues all the way through. Faith is not just this personal relationship. Faith is much larger than this. It's global. It's huge. Faith is believing in the impossible. That's what faith is. And unfortunately for us, we've diminished faith to just the practical personal relationship with God. What he said, Isaiah said to Ahaz, was that I need you to believe in the improbable. I need you to believe in something that's impractical. I need you to actually believe that faith is large, that God is working, that there is hope taking place inside here. 
Well, the Assyrians run riots, and here's the final map that I want to show you. They actually not only take over uh, Israel in the north here, but they go down and they affect Judah, and they take an immigration policy that's quite drastic. They remove everybody from Israel, and they disperse them through the lands. Hence, we get the famous phrase and the famous story of the 10 lost tribes of Israel because it's the 10 northern kingdoms. I did a paper on this years and years ago when I was at college, of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. And here's the interesting idea. There is today a worldwide organization called the British Israelite World Federation. You can Google this. They believe that they are going to call together people in Australia, Europe, and America and I think maybe New Zealand may be included in this, who are, they have traced the, the heritage that they are the 10 lost tribes of Israel. And they worked it out because they said that the very final guy who dies, uh, the final king that we get to eventually in, in Kings here, when he dies and Israel's taken into captivity, well, there was a princess and she escaped with a prophet and they went to Ireland, all right? And, and, and the thing is, this is, it's kind of fantastic because they took the stone the stone that Jacob laid his head down on, you know, the stone that he, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord at that time, and that stone went to Ireland, and that's why the Irish kept Sabbath, which you do know that the Irish kept Sabbath, that was Saturday Sabbath for them, for many, many years. The Picts, they were famous for this. So you can struggle, like, maybe there's some truth to this, right? And so they took it through, and then the Scots came and said, ah, stuffed the Irish, and they went down and they took the stone from the Irish, and the stone went to Scotland, and so the Israelites, the 10 lost tribes, went to Scotland, and then the British came along, the English said, ah, stuffed them, and took the stone, and it's underneath the Queen's throne today. That stone right there. So therefore, the 10 lost tribes are the British people, wherever they are in the world. And one day, they will go back to Israel, and they will take Israel, which explains politically why England has always bent over backwards to defend the Jewish people, doesn't it? I mean, if you like conspiracies, this is a great one. <laughs> Because we want to believe the stone and the heritage and all these different things coming through all together because we're trying to work out what was going on. But meanwhile, back there in this land here, the Syrians very carefully are breaking down family units. That's what they're doing. They're breaking down national identity. And they pushed people inside to Israel, took people outside. And as they're doing this back and forth all the time, they realized they created a new culture that was not containable that nobody knew how to handle. And as this culture grew, they said, you know what we should do? We should send a priest there to help level the ground. And they did, they sent a priest. And the priest kind of created a half form of religion, a half form semi-following God. And that's how that Northern Kingdom lived from that day forward, in this chaos of kind of following God and not following God all the time. And today, we ask ourselves the same thing. How do we grow our faith if it's not just personal but global faith? It's when we realize that God is working in all of the chaos and the mystery taking place around us. And we have to learn to trust God, but we have really learned not to trust anybody, right? We tell our children, don't trust strangers, which is very good, very important. Don't trust strangers. We tell ourselves, don't trust our friends, don't trust our bosses because they've abused us and hurt us. Don't trust our churches because they've done things wrong against us. Don't trust the stock markets because it goes up and down. Don't trust anybody, advisors, nobody. And inside that, God is saying, learn to trust me. 
learn to be able to grab hold of faith, not personal faith, but global life faith. So this morning, I went for a walk um, with Beck, and we do this Sabbath mornings, and it's beautiful, it's about four miles, and I've broken some new shoes, so I'm hobbling with them, it was great. But as I was walking back, uh, back towards the house, early this morning, the sun was rising up, and I was explaining to Becky how I feel about church, and what I feel about Sabbath morning. And, what I, and the joy is this, is that what I, I, what I do is, is that I, I actually look so forward to it because I'm like, well, I get to put all the worries of life away, all the craziness that goes on, all the, the statements and this and that and this. I just get to go to church and be with family, be with community, and, and douse myself in God's word. And as the sun came up, I was like, this is just inspiring to me. And I'm saying, this is how I claim the faith the huge faith. And God is saying to us that these are the three things that, are, that we should take away from here. He says this, we have grace to live, we have hope to give, and we have faith to claim. I'm gonna invite the team to come up and lead us in our final songs of worship here right now, but I'm telling you this, as we wrestle through life, when you think about all the complexity of the kings, and all the things that they had to handle inside their lives, and all the complexities that we face every single way, when you pause in God, you can actually say, there is grace to live, and that's what we have. And there is hope that we actually are able to give to others by being a good voice. And there is faith that we get to claim, because the faith is not just us, but it's the entire world. Amen. May Jesus bless those of us who are mean-spirited with gentleness and a heart that is tender. May Jesus bless those of us who struggle with doubts, with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless those of us who have children or loved ones who are struggling with ill health, with compassion and care. May Jesus bless those of us who are timid or question our self-worth with courage, daring to be who we are. May Jesus bless those of us who are judgmental with openness, understanding, and respect. May Jesus bless all of us with the power to make Jesus all.